Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Uh, happy surprise Nintendo Direct week. I'm sorry that happened to you. It sure did. Right on top of a very busy preview week as well. And also we're recovering Netflix's ta-doom. That's there. <laughs> That's their event <laughs> around like the Witcher and Cowboy Bebop and everything. They named it after the tone that plays when Netflix starts. I was about to say, is that did they seriously name it that? That's they sure did. I'm so mad yet enthralled. I can't really I can't really like explain the feelings I'm feeling right now. I'm so mad yet enthralled. The acts of the blood god experience. Basically. Well, Nadia, we can be mad and enthralled as we continue the PC RPG quest. Yes, it's part two. And we have a special guest. It's Jason Wilson. We just got done recording with him. And as he reminisced about growing up in the 1980s, playing all those wonderful PC RPGs from that era, the Ultimas, the Might and Magics, the SSI, Gold Box games. It's all there. And it's going to be fun. Jason's a lovely bloke. And we also he also is going to make us review uh, Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous. So you can look forward to that, too. <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, that's going to be a good episode because that's a that's kind of a an empty spot for both of us, oh, yeah. frankly. Yes, yes. We'll get Mike. We'll get Jason. It'll be good. In the meantime, if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on the podcatcher of your choice. It brightens our day, improves the visibility of the podcast, all that jazz. You can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford, and we are on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/bloodgodpod, where we have all of our special episodes. The fun thing, Nadia, over on our Discord, we have a new channel. It's the classic Blood God revisit. We're nostalgic now. We are officially nostalgia. I, I don't even know. I, I can't even begin to fathom that because I guess it's been, what, five years? A little more now? Six years at this point. I mean, you joined <sighs> the show properly in 2016. So Yeah, and I had just started with US Gamer, as I recall. So Yeah, yeah. I, I I forgot the exact moment that I said, you're the co-host. And I unilaterally said, you're the co-host now. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me. I'm the co-host now. I was like, fun. When people like, you've become such a fixture. People can't imagine the show without you. They're like, wow, like Nadia wasn't there for like a year. That's insane. I don't know how I became a fixture. I mean, I'm glad it happened, but I just never saw myself in any sort of uh, career path that involved podcasting. Who knows where life's going to take you? Well, it's because we love you, Nadia. You're great. Ah, that's nice. Well, Nadia, let's get started about talking about our sacrifice to the blood god, the RPG that needs to we need to sate our dark master. And I will go first. I got to play the Switch OLED, Nadia. Oh, how is that working out for you? You know, I I talked about it over at IGN.com, my day job. I Cough. thought it was pretty great, actually. Awesome. Like the screen is gorgeous. I think it is a big improvement over the launch switch in particular, which is my it's the one yeah. I played, obviously. It it makes the launch switch screen look faded by comparison. Uh, the 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 blacks are richer. The the colors overall are just more vibrant. The bezels, which are the little things at the top of the screen that kind of frame the actual picture, uh-huh. so much thinner. So really? it feels like looking when I pick up my launch switch now. I feel like I'm looking at a Studebaker TV from like the <laughs> 1950s. A Radiation King. Yeah, it's totally, <laughs> exactly. That's, it's just totally different. Um, and I'm like, damn it. Well, I'm really glad that I put in my pre-order. It's such a luxury item. It's a ridiculous yeah. purchase. 
that's all you're getting is the screen. You get the the, the better storage and the new kickstand. Got a kickstand. Hey, hey. in the wired land port. And that's about it. That is what you are getting from the Switch OLED. It does not have a better processor or any of that. So it's just for maniacs like myself who must have the absolute best possible experience. And we're willing to actually pay for it. But you know what? Like I went in feeling kind of dumb about pre-ordering the Switch OLED. And I came out feeling a little bit better, at least. Not as ridiculous. Yeah, a little less ridiculous. I can't remember. I didn't keep up with any of the news afterwards, but did the pre-orders like go well? It must have gone really well for Nintendo. Uh, well, you can't get one. It's pre-orders are sold out. So okay, yes, so that's my answer. Yeah. Uh, so even if I wanted to change my mind, I can't. They're in demand. I also managed to get a white one. So they oh, got the really? cool color scheme. I forgot about the new color schemes. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I you can't get, get the Joy Cons separately. So. Ah, yes, true. So if you want that fancy white Nintendo Switch. So yeah, I got I I'm gonna just feel great when the Switch Pro comes out in a year and it turns out it's like, <laughs> well, sure did spring for the Switch OLED. Good job, me. There's always room for another Switch in the house. I'm sure I'm sure one of your your like roommates would like it or something. Here's the amazing thing. Nintendo won't let you review games on the launch unit anymore. Really? Like, yeah, like the codes won't work on a launch unit. You have to get the one with the better battery life at a minimum. Okay, I did not even know that. That is so that is so strange to me. So it's actually kind of a worthwhile investment for me because for, yeah, there you go. Yeah. This excuse cat. Yeah, no, it. now I can review games on this thing. And oh, maybe yeah. I can, yeah, no, that's a that's a great reason to get a Switch OLED. Cough, cough, cough. <laughs> Meantime, I'm the person who spent a couple hundred dollars to get a Sony PVM CRT television because I've entered that phase in my life, Nadia, where I must have the absolute best retro experience, best video game experience, whatever. It's like, I must have it. But it's awesome. It's amazing. Nadia, I don't know how I ever played emulated games it is unbelievable, mind-blowing, not having input delay. The milliseconds of input delay. It only cost you a couple hundred bucks? Yeah, I was lucky. Really? I, I know a friend in the Bay Area um, oh. who is really into the retro scene, and he had a PVM that he didn't want. When you say PVM, I'm I'm trying to think of that. Like, I have a flat-screen Toshiba. That's, mm. It was one of the last CRTs they made before... HD took everything over. And I'm wondering if I'm sure that would be worth a lot of money now because oh, yeah. yeah, for the retro experience, like there's no better. Uh, mm-hmm. not even like a, a regular CRT, which are also in demand these days, like yeah. doesn't even compare to that. This one is like a medical monitor. I mean it's wow. high grade, high grade stuff. So it, it's very, very good though. And I got my super analog NT all hooked up to it. Got a lot Where of games. Go? I got the uh, I got the English translated patched ROM of, of Fire Emblem Genealogy of the Holy War. Oh, cool. This thing. Fire, Final Fantasy V. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the good stuff. And you've, I, been hang, you've been hanging around that, that Paris child for too long. He's, he's a bad influence on you. I told my housemate Ryan, who was also very excited about it because he's going to speed run Metroid now, Super Metroid. Oh, sweet. I said, I'm quitting my job. I'm just going to be a... Just gonna play Super Nintendo games now. And he goes, <laughs> "Well, you better go take over the streaming room uh, from Emily." And I'm like, "Streaming? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah? You mean they don't pay me to just sit here and play by myself?" Yeah, I'm just gonna play Super Nintendo games now. I gotta yeah. play Macross Scrambled Valkyrie, 
and Gundam Wing endless duel on this thing. It's great. My moment has come. I did forget that Super. I did not realize Super Mario World had slowdown. I was it like, does yes, yeah. I had I completely blanked that out in my mind. There was not slowdown, but nope, there is. There is significant slowdown in some of the underwater levels, as I recall. That's a big major point there. Uh, you're not talking about anything as big as what you got with Super Mario Three on the NES back in the day, but yes, there are. There are moments where you have to work around the slowdown. And Super Nintendo games, well, that was just kind of a harbinger of things to come because they are terrible for slowdown most of the time. The Super Mario World, I mean, that Super Nintendo had a bad processor. That's why it the Sega Genesis could get away with talking about blast processing. Blast processing. I don't know why they went with the weaker processor. There's got to be a reason that I just don't know about. Yeah, who knows? It's lost Better in history. Colors. It is. Better yeah. colors. But that's why it was a good RPG machine. You wanted your sports games, you go play the Genesis. You want your, you know, shoot 'em ups your sh- and, and all that, you go play your Genesis. Nadia, what have you been playing? I'm playing a few things. Number one, uh, I can't remember who I'm reviewing it for off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm reviewing Jet. What is the, Jet? That is the funniest thing because when I was approached with the review, I said, What is that? And I looked at it and I can't remember what event it was. It was quite recent where every single person on the internet looked at this game and said wow that looks lovely and it's by the sword and sorcery uh developers uh brothers i can't remember the name of the uh the game off the top of my head right now because it's the end of the week but it's a, that game where you are kind of skimming across an alien planet and learning about it you're part of a culture that is basically staring doomsday in the face and okay you say okay so i'm going to go uh look at this planet a thousand years away that's been kind of calling to us and we'll see if we can establish you know the the species there so you're skimming across your with your uh proverbial jet g that is j-e-t-t and jet 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 sorry jet 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 (laughs) and you are basically scanning life looking at different things and seeing what hope the planet holds if any for your people's future and it is I can't say much about it because we're under embargo, but I am very much enjoying it, except for the fact that, holy crap, I didn't, I forgot that I can get so motion sick from video games, and I'm having a bit of a problem with that, but I expect I will build up my tolerance again, hopefully. Build up your tolerance. You know, I don't actually like reviewing games anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to, but then when I remembered, what game is this? And I Googled it. I said, oh, I was actually very interested in playing that. And yeah, these days I'm not accepting reviews unless I'm interested in the game. That's, I'm sorry, reviews don't pay half as much as they need to for me to start taking reviews I don't care about. The problem when you with doing reviews when you're a freelancer is that they are insanely time consuming and you make virtually no money off them. The only reason yeah. to do review is because it's fun, question mark, and <laughs> you can, you know, get an opportunity to stretch out your legs and do some critical writing and especially the high-level reviews, the, the top reviews are really good for your actual profile. Like People will know your name if you're doing those major reviews. But at the same time, like just the having uh, the amount of energy expended, especially when you're a freelancer, it's just, it's a lot, Nadia. So. I'm kind of at the age and stage of my life where people say, oh, this will look great for your profile. I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. <laughs> I'm here living my best life, writing the things I want to write for the most part, and I'm good with that. If I am no longer the coolest kid in games writing, I never was, so it was never really a step down to begin with. 
Nadia, you're the coolest kid in games writing to me. Oh, thank you. That's what actually matters. You're also playing ActRaiser. Do you like it? I like it. Like, here's the thing it's about the so Act- ugly. I don't think it is. See, the there what's kind of pissing me off about that discourse is that somebody took a screenshot of the game and said how it looks like Sonic Four. It's terrible. It's this. It's that. It's an insult to everything ActRaiser stands for. And it's just a single screenshot. The game's not in motion. It's not the mm. most incredible looking game in the universe, but it's it's kind of like Ghosts and Goblins, the remake that came out recently, where you look at it at a glance, you're like, oh, that's kind of terrible. That's uh, I'm not really into that. But then you look closer, you're like, oh, okay, I can see how they stylized this. That's actually not so bad. And I think that it plays well, and that's what I wanted out of a, an ActRaiser game. I find that people who are playing it are saying, oh, wow, this is actually really good. It's not really a remake one-to-one by any means of the original ActRaiser. If you want that original ActRaiser experience, God help you. I do kind of wish that had come out as well. But it's just an interesting new take on ActRaiser. And the only thing I'm not sure about is that the sim portions now contain a, um, a tower defense segment that I'm just like, uh, tower defense and I, I either love it or I hate it. At least in this game's instance, it's not like just random, hey, everyone time for a tower defense thing. It's, it lets you know when you're coming into a, a tower defense bit and you have time to build up your, your defenses as necessary. Yeah, I have no major complaints about the game, really. I'm so surprised and glad that it came out. I do want to play the most incredible looking game in the universe. I bet it would be mind blowing. <laughs> I I wonder what game that would even be. What would it, It's so... It, it, it's so like up to personal taste what an incredible game looks like like here's here's the discourse for you not about act razor but universe Kirby. show me the greatest looking game in the universe oh sweet in two all right i'm into it i'm into your taste i like the cut of your jib universe that's probably my first selection as well <laughs> but definitely sweet in two is definitely up there uh well but- now i have to think about it but <laughs> Well, here's the thing. Like, are you a Kirby fan? Oh, yeah. And the 3D, the 3D Kirby game looks dope. Yeah. See, to uh, you and I were like, wow, what a great looking game. And did I not see a fanboy for Sony? I don't know what it was saying. Oh, my God. Look what Nintendo's charging for a game that looks like this compared to Kenner Bridge of Spirits. Literally oh, took those games <laughs> side by shut side. Up. I'm like, how how brain dead do you have to we be should- to have that take? We should start a segment called like Bad Resetera Takes because my favorite was the Switch is the worst aging Nintendo console. It's so much worse than the Wii, which aged like fine wine. <laughs> fine wine, but made it left out it, the sun, like, maybe. It looked amazing going into like 2012. I'm like, yeah, that is some revisionist <laughs> history there, my friend. That here's the thing, at least about the Switch. No, it is not the most powerful system ever. Still but, looks great. I'm playing yeah. Eastward. That game looks phenomenal. Holy yeah, Eastward looks fantastic. I mean, every time I play Eastward, I'm just like, wow. Like the pacing's a little slow, but I just love the sprite work in that game. The sprite work, like we were talking about Suikoden Two. I would say this is easily the best looking sprite game since Suikoden Two, and then some. You did touch on one problem I'm having with Eastward, though. I don't think it's a very well paced game. I think they really could have worked more on that. And we were talking about Earthbound and how people kind of get their inspiration from Earthbound these days. And that's something Eastward does mostly successfully. But 
the thing with Earthbound is its tone is very consistent through the whole game. Whereas Eastward has some really dark moments. And you're like, wow, where's this going? This is fascinating. And then it's like, oh, we're going to go do this cooking contest. Uh, what about the thing with the, nope, nope, cooking contest right now. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I don't like that at all. Whereas Earthbound, when you get to Happy Happy Village, it just hits the ground and keeps going. I find it very chill. It is extremely, extremely chill, even though I would say those fights can be kind of hard. Um, I haven't run into any fights yet. How, how just, far are you? I'm just now getting to the surface. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So well, we'll find out. But no, I, I'm enjoying it. It's, it's oh, really so good. am I. So in, in, in the interest of full disclosure, Nadia, I lost um, about a month. Yeah, it was about a month when uh, to football manager touch. <laughs> I uh, or I made the football manager mobile. Sorry. Oh, okay. A game on my mobile phone. Played multiple seasons to turn West Ham into an absolute juggernaut because West Ham have been they've been all right this season, and it's made me kind of hype for soccer. I was like, I need to get the soccer. Need to play it. I don't like FIFA anymore. FIFA's bad. (laughs) So (laughs) sick of FIFA. It's just not fun to play. So. I uh, I booted up my little strategy sim and just put probably 60, 70 hours into this game. So that oh, happened damn. to me. But, but, but in the latest season, all of my players got hurt. And I was like, well, I just barely missed out on the trouble. But honestly, this is a good stopping point. All of my players are hurt and my season's kind of shutting along. And I have a super team. It's good. I'm good. I'm done. I am stopping. And now I'm playing Deathloop instead. And it's good. All my players kicked each other in the dick, incapacitated each other. This is a good place to end the story. All the people who listen to this podcast know that periodically there will be times where I just become completely obsessed over a game that is not yes. an RPG and then just don't play anything else for quite a while. And that's, this is one of those moments. And I have some regrets, but not, not many. All right, Nadia, let's talk about the Nintendo Direct. So lots happening. Um, Maybe the one that broke the internet is Chris Pratt being Mario. (laughs) I said this news transcends genres, and I think I'm right. This is all too true. Nadia, what was your immediate reaction when you found out that Chris Pratt would be playing Mario? My husband and I were watching together, and we just like pointed and laughed at the screen because that was the funniest thing that we'd heard all day. Everybody lost their Everyone mind. laughed. <laughs> they just lost it. The internet broke. Miyamoto introducing Chris Pratt. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I like how someone on Twitter said, yeah, that's just so Nintendo. Miyamoto just comes in, drops the weirdest shit ever, and run and just walks out. Like, Oh, the memes Nintendo. were flowing. Oh, the memes God. were flowing immediately. Oh, my gosh. But as for Pratt himself, I have no big opinion. And I think that's because I was there and you probably were too on opening day of the Mario movie in the 90s. Like, oh, no, Nintendo got the most basic, boring actor to play Mario. This is this is a this this is just too much. Everybody wanted Danny DeVito. People wanted DeVito for Detective Pikachu as well. And I understand why. But, you know, Ron Reynolds. Everybody loves Danny DeVito. Well, he is awesome. That's because he's a meme. People want the memes. From day one, the Detective Pikachu and the, oh, oh, I dropped the monster condom from a magnum dong. (laughs) Just Detective Pikachu saying that to some girl. And that's why everyone wanted Danny DeVito. It's Pikachu, which I understand. I've read plenty of bad stories about Chris Pratt. Yeah. um, yeah, On the internet. But 
at the same time, I'm just kind of like, yes, the internet has decided do not like Chris Pratt and wish to cancel him. Yeah. I uh, do not have any particularly strong opinion. I've I've seen the stories and the anecdotes for sure, but I am reserving judgment. I did enjoy Parks and Rec. Sorry. Also, he's from Minnesota. This is, he is really? not. Yeah, he is actually from Minnesota. This isn't me saying that uh, I like Chris Pratt or anything. I'm just like going, I don't know. I do not have an opinion on him. Meanwhile, yeah. the rest of the cast is, what can I say? It was like fan casting. Every oh, choice became more ridiculous than the last. Jack Black is Bowser. <laughs> you That's going to be great. I Fred love Armisen Black. is Cranky Cog. You're like, what is going on? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Charles Martinet just appearing in places. Appearing as himself, (laughs) apparently. I hope this movie's a complete tire fire. It'll be great. It's not going. It's going to be the most basic ass Mario movie. I'm sure it'll be perfectly fun and funny. It's going to be like the. It's going to be like every other fucking uh, part of my language. Oh my God. Goodness. Family show. It's just going to be. Is it going to be like every other animated movie where they have some celebrity cast? And they're making lots of pop culture jokes. Is this where we're going with Nintendo? I don't know if that's are they going to really be playing Nintendo the boys style. are back in town when Mario and Luigi are hopping around. Is that going to be the montage? See, you have to say that one thing that the new movie will not get better than the old movie is the soundtrack. Which no, was, absolutely not. Which had Roxette on it. Come on, Roxette had a song for it, a whole song for it. Mario movie. I acknowledge the amazing, ridiculous set design. I acknowledge the uh, I acknowledge the soundtrack, but I will never say that was a good movie. No, it was God no. Boring. It was a boring movie. Like the Street Fighter movie, just had me in stitches. I was rolling around. It was the funniest movie I have ever watched. Because <laughs> of Van Damme. Oh, it was incredible. Just top to bottom. That movie is phenomenal. But the Mario movie was just, it's just bad. It's just bad. When I look at it now, I say, holy crap, can you imagine Nintendo letting this exist in this day and age? Like, it's so a product of its time and very, very much a summation of what media was like for us back then, supplementary media. Hey, I like Mario. Let's go watch this cartoon. Oh, this is terrible. Same with the movie. Video game movies in the 90s, I tells you. It wasn't great. No, there was Double Dragon. Never saw that Two one. Two bad tastes going bad together. <laughs> one hand had no idea what the other hand was doing. What was the one game that could have been a good movie in the 90s? Was Is there one? I don't know. Dragon Quest? I, maybe Dragon Quest, but that would be such a basic, basic fantasy just, film. They're just better as anime, honestly. Yeah, see, anime got it right to begin with. Hey, here's the characters you like to see. Do you remember how game fan used to have the stills of like the Street Fighter movie and we'd be like, wow, look how cool that is. And then you'd watch it. It's like, oh, this is pretty good, but not nearly as good as I had imagined it would be. You could have had a really cheesy Zelda live action Zelda movie. Yeah, that would be cheesy. All right. Remember that cart that I can't even stand the commercial they had back then. Exactly. All right, Nadia, let's talk about the rest of the news that we saw during the Nintendo Direct, because that pretty much comprised all of the news in games this past <laughs> week. Yes. 
Monster Hunter Rise DLC. It's called Sunbreak. It's going to have multiple locales, new enemies, and it's going to be coming out in the summer, which is a long time. I want to play it now. Now, Nadia. I was kind of hoping we'd get DLC for Monster Hunter Stories 2, but that's this is good, too. I don't like Monster Hunter Stories 2. I loved Stories 2. So it's one of my favorites this year. Why? It was just so much fun. It was a fun world to explore. It was fun to ride on my own monsters. It was fun to groove their genes. Nadia, this game really should have clicked with me. And I'm I surprised. can't figure out why it did not. Just it everything, everything was in place. It's, rel- it's quite pretty. It's cool to ride around on monsters. I like the world of Monster Hunter. It of has course. good turn-based combat. But just something about this game did not click with me. Is it that Palico who never shuts up? It's probably that Palico No, the Palico was up. all right. I think it was going into the random dungeons and collecting eggs and then hatching them. I was just like, oh, I don't want to. so much fun. I did not find that part. fun. And actually, I wasn't a huge fan of the combat system either. I like the combat system. But it was all right. But... I, I liked really getting in depth with the genes and stuff like that and screwing around with that. I had a good time. Yeah, I really wanted to like Monster Hunter Stories too. But... I have to say, though, like, having your own Legiana to ride around on. That's just mm-hmm. what's not amazing about it's that. It's great. No, it's great. Yeah. Absolutely great. And uh, maybe I should give it another chance. Maybe maybe give it some more time. But also I'm a busy lady playing football manager. Yes. <laughs> football managers for 80 hours. Nadia, we got to see Yoko Taro's card game. It's the Isle of Dragon Roars. Is that what it is? And it says you're The reminds- Isle of Dragon Roars. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds you of Crimson Shroud, huh? Yeah, I, on Twitter, I called this Justice for Crimson Shroud. Did you ever get to play Crimson Shroud? Oh, yeah, yeah. I liked that one. That was the one where you're rolling the dice, right? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much yeah. the same thing here. I don't think it's, I don't think you have the figurine style, which was really awesome about Crimson Shroud, mm. but I still think it's a very kind of basic back to, t- uh, to tabletop RPG aesthetic that who knows what the hell Yoko Taro is going to do with it. You got to keep that in mind, too. It's probably going to combust in your hand as soon as you pick it up. Like, <laughs> don't don't count on anything with this game. We were making all the jokes already and like a couple episodes ago when they first teased this about how he's going to completely mess with the card collecting genre. And you know what? <laughs> yes. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Whatever he does, I'm good with it. I like that you say Kirby Nira Automata looks dope and transcends genres. I agree. This is the best yep. looking Kirby. Most interesting Kirby I've seen in a long time. This is the first 3D Kirby, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, first fully 3D Kirby. I did not get to. Yeah, I did not get ah. to play Crystal Shard, which was more mm. uh, 2.5D. I am really intrigued by the idea of an open world Kirby. And one thing a lot of people miss about Kirby is it has a really interesting story behind it. It's not in your face at all. But uh, the end of the last Kirby game kind of confirmed that Kirby was is an eldritch god and he's just Kirby and we're all very lucky he's Kirby because otherwise we'd be dead. And I'm just very curious to see where the, the new game goes with that. It could be a lot of fun. Bow before Kirby. He is your dark God. He is though. Who would, win a in, who would win in a battle between the blood God and Kirby? I want to know. Um, shoot. I can't say it. Cause it'd be blasphemy. Would we have to start calling this podcast acts of the Kirby Axe at that of the point? Kirby. Yeah. We're lucky, though, because Kirby doesn't care about competition. Kirby cares about sandwiches. That's true. Kirby is the Tom Bombadil of yes. uh, Nintendo characters. He very, very much is. He could end everything as he soon could. as you or I could blink, but he won't. It, yeah. His friends live here. Why would he do that? 
Why not just store the ring in Kirby? Oh, wow. Hmm. It is a void. And then Kirby would become the ring. Okay. Oh, dear. Like, okay, if the if the ring won't, if the ring can still corrupt, like, Galadriel and Gandalf and all of that, it might still be able to corrupt Kirby, which would really not be a good scene. That's terrifying. It is. Nadia, Genesis and N64 games are coming to the Nintendo Switch. How excited are you for this? I love the the gall Nintendo has to charge us extra for these games. <laughs> that is pretty galling, isn't it? I'm totally going to pay for it. I probably will, too. I'm not 100% I was just sure going on and on about how I can't stand emulation anymore, but I don't care. I'm Star Fox 64 on my Switch, I'm in. I have to admit, like, am I, when I'm just looking to kill a few minutes and I don't know what I really want to do, I just pick up a game from the Nintendo Switch online and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to like on the Genesis. I mean, a fantasy star on the Switch that I don't have to dig through Genesis collection for? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll yeah. take that. Fantasy star four on Switch? Perfect. So we got, so what, we got the original fantasy star and we got fantasy star four, but we don't have fantasy star two. Is that it? <laughs> Fantasy Star 2. Oh, is you can not get a great Fantasy game. Star 2 if you get the Sega collection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're missing that. Uh, we're missing three. No, maybe we have three on the Genesis collection. I don't remember. There's yeah. a little kerfuffle because the six button controller will be available in Japan, but the three button controller will be in America. And people are like, why what they... the hell, Nintendo? Why did they do that? I why asked them that? and they said, it's because it's the most iconic controller in America. I'm like, no, get the, just release the six button controller. Yeah. I'm sure the six button controller would have been iconic if people, if we'd had it like around more and people knew, hey, this is actually good. <laughs> Looking through the list of some of these games, some serious wins in here. Bloodlines is in there, which is great. Mm-hmm. One of the yeah, best Castlevania game. games. Paper Mario is going to be in here. Yeah. That's great. Um, this opens the door for perhaps releasing Pokemon Stadium onto the Switch. If Pokemon Snap is coming. Hey, Pokemon Snap, the original. Yeah, the original. It's a good stuff. I'm into yeah. it. Yeah. I'm actually quite impressed by how many N64 games I, I end up caring about after all on the on this. Like Paper Mario. I was like, oh, you know what? I've never played through the original. I should really do that. Am I going to spend 50 American dollars on that Nintendo 64 controller? You better believe it. I'm going to be playing Star Fox 64. I'm not doing that. I'll play Star Fox, but I'm not paying for that controller. You're right, though. It is pretty galling of Nintendo to be like, yeah, you pay extra. The Switch Online is not a good service. You pay no. extra. If it was a good service, I'd be like, sure, whatever. Well, I'm fine with that. But I'm still here waiting for... Uh, more games like for the SNES and the NES, which are coming. They're like, oh, don't worry, we're not stopping with the other games. But That's where's great. Earthbound? Pay us exactly. extra for the Genesis and the N64. Yeah. So there's a lot to be desired with the N60 with Nintendo Online. And it's not but it's not expensive. It doesn't mean I want to throw good money after bad. We also got some release dates, Nadia. Disco Elysium will be coming out on Switch on October 12th. Why do you say it's not so great timing? Because we just did the uh, the Pantheon, mm. and I played yeah, it on my PC. should have been earlier. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, well. Maybe you'll be able to do cross-save, and then you can play it then. Keep Pick up your game. Yeah. You know, that would be great if I could do that. I think on Twitter I said, Kuno, the pigs are coming to Switch yeah. on October 12th. Kuno. I'm just really glad we did that episode so that we can make those references now. Yeah. That's why this we did it. This is why the Pantheon is an unadulterated good. <laughs> that's true. Triangle Strategy is coming March 4th. I am pumped for this game. Did you play the demo? You did play the demo, didn't you? Sure did. You did not. Really? 
I don't really okay. play demos. Uh, I know what you mean. I'm not a big demo person. I'm not a big early access person. Just, no, I want the same. full experience. Just give it to me. Although I do have to say for that particular team and Square in general, they're good about putting out surveys and saying, okay, here, we yeah. listen to your feedback, which is great. Generally. I'll do it for that reason. Yeah. Uh, Delta Ruin Chapter 2 is on PC and Switch, and it's free, interestingly enough. Uh, I went and got it onto my Switch because Bob yelled at me for not playing it. Of course them. he did. Oh, that's right. You haven't played Undertale, have you? I have played Undertale. Okay. I want to clarify this. I just didn't okay. finish it. Oh, well then. I bounced off it. Did you finish? So you didn't finish the neutral route or the good, or the good route or anything like Absolutely that? Absolutely not. I did not get that far into Undertale. Oh, I was gracious. like, this is weird. And then I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is weird. Had my fill. Goodbye. I mean, that's me, right? I'll play football manager for 200 freaking hours, but like, I'll pick up Undertale universally regarded as one of the best RPGs of the past decade, and I'll be like, that's weird. Yeah, I'm glad that Delta Rune Chapter 2 is coming to Switch. That's perfect. It looks I great. Well, I was partly inspired because looking at the trailer, I was like, well, that looks cool. I did not actually know what Delta Rune looked like. <laughs> like really? We talked about it on the podcast. I, you've talked about it. I had no idea what it looks like until now. I just wasn't paying attention. It looks like it definitely has Earthbound, not Earthbound, uh, Undertale style, but it's more complex now and more unified. It Whereas, looks cool. Uh, yeah, it looks good. I don't know why it's episodic. I find that kind of annoying. No idea. I guess it's just what uh, Toby Fox can manage. He is basically a one man band at this point. That's fair enough. And finally, the Shadowrun trilogy for Switch. That is a nice little surprise. We're also getting KOTOR on Switch. Maybe I wouldn't get that one because the Star Wars games have been a little iffy. But who knows? Maybe it'll be it's, a better port. It said it's a cloud-based port, so that could go any number of ways. It sure could. The Shadowrun trilogy, uh, especially the Hong Kong one, very good. Very, very, very I good. am looking forward to that because I've always wanted to play Shadowrun. I think I'd like it. And it's been a one of those games that's a little harder to, to access. So the fact that it's on the Switch, the most accessible platform of all, that'll be uh, a really good boon for it. A boon. Boon. And Nadia, one more item. We have been kind of not talking about this game on this podcast for a lot of reasons, but uh, Diablo 2 Resurrected is now available. If you are into that sort of thing, um, it from what I played during the early access, it was a really nifty uh, update of Diablo 2. But get this, Nadia, it's 2013 all over again. Server troubles for Diablo 2 Resurrected. It never ends. <laughs> it's the really complete nostalgic experience. Oh, yeah. It's been a great year for Activision Blizzard. I tell you, the best year. They've had, they're they, being they've been sued by everybody. They're reenacting the Diablo 3 thing. All of that stuff. But And a bunch of people just left. What, isn't that true? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, the over, one of the top Overwatch 2 executives bounced. Ouch. Yes. I do not really intend to pick up Diablo 2 Resurrected or review it at this time. I think Activision Blizzard's kind of toxic at the moment. But Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm actually wondering if the next slash last smash fighter is crash and nintendo's just kind of like okay what do we do now oh you think so <laughs> i don't know it's just crossed my mind but i mean nothing against toys for bob god knows i love them but of course they're associated with activision blizzard through no real fault mm. of their own and 
we all know how that turned out for them anyway. But it's still very much a that would generate a lot of discourse that maybe Nintendo doesn't want to wade into right now. I don't know for sure though. I'm gonna make a very specific prediction, Nadia. Mm-hmm. I think it will be a Pokemon. I think it will be Urshifu. And oh. I think that the reason is that it is Pokemon's uh, 25th anniversary and they don't have a Sword and Shield representative and Urshifu would fit in really well into the game. But they already have Incineroar. Sure do. Doesn't matter. Look at all those Fire Emblem characters. You got a point. If <laughs> Nintendo decides that they want to push a particular character in Smash, they're going to get him to push a particular character in Smash. Either that or Cinderace, because Cinderace has been very popular. Yeah, Cinderace is a good one. But I remember uh, Sakurai saying outright, look, if you don't like the way they're chosen, uh, that's Nintendo, it's not me. The guy I really want is Phoenix Wright. That's who I want. I think Wright, if he could throw his briefcase at people. Phoenix Wright really would cool. be amazing. The great finale. I'd be so happy. I think people would generally be happy with that selection because it's not over. he's not overrepresented on, on any side. You know, I was thinking, okay, well, what is Master Chief? Well, you already have, you know, it won't Minecraft. be Master Chief. They're not going to yeah. put an Xbox character as their final character. All right, that is it for the news and what we've been playing. It's time for the PC RPG quest with Jason Wilson. We're diving into the 80s. It's the 80s again. 80s Cafe. Don't go away. Jason Wilson, who has been on the show many times, but hasn't been here in a while. I haven't been I haven't been on X of the Blood God since you guys went independent. No way. I mean, yeah, I think the last time you were <laughs> here might have been like 2017, 2018 there. Yeah, it's been a while. That's it's been a right. while. So Jason Wilson's our PC RPG guys, so we and we had to have him on here because we're in the middle of our PC RPG quest through the history Ooh. of all of those wonderful PC RPGs and Jason, unlike myself, was actually there playing games back in the heyday, the golden oh age gosh. of PC you guys, RPGs. You realize I'm turning 27 next week. <laughs> 47. Why did I say 27? Wait a minute. Don't like, screw wow, with you're me so like old. that. I thought he was joking. I was joking. No, 47 next week. Jason, tell me about your early memories with RPGs in the so, early 1980s. So... I came across RPGs with our first computers, which were this, you know, big, clunky, IBM-ish type of thing, which I don't remember what it was even named, and then a Tandy. And then we went on to an Apple II, and an Apple II GS, and then I started buying and making my own PCs. Oh, cool. So the first one I ever played was a Calabeth, which oh, is the precursor. Oh, you played a Calabeth. Mm-hmm. That was the first... That was the first... RPG I ever played. It was also the first non arcade game I ever played. Oh, wow. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't quite understand it. I think I was seven. <laughs> well, that yeah. was me in Star Raiders. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing in this game, but yeah. it sure is fun. <laughs> yeah. So, so if you've ever seen a Calabeth, it's it, it, it's the most basic. Of first oh, person so basic. Crawling. So basic. You know, yeah. you, you you've got the walls, and you got a creature shows up in front of you, and that's it. 
And then you have a couple levels of the dungeon that you explore and you have your character and you kind of fight through and you pick up some loot and then you fight the, the, the bad guy at the end. And that was it. But this was uh, Richard Garrio's first one, Lord British himself. And this was back when, you know, he wasn't even selling it in a box. It was like bagged up and yeah. later <laughs> runs came. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you two remember places like Software, etc. Yes. Of oh, course. Yeah. Or Egghead. Oh, yeah. In, uh, Egghead. in Canada, it was CompuCenter. Yeah. So the Bay Area, we had one called Egghead which was perfect. Okay. I loved Egghead. And it had a little Einstein-ish guy with a big head as its logo. <laughs> so th- that's where we got games. So that was the first one I played. And then the next RPGs I played were actually on the Intellivision. Oh. oh. So so the Intellivision was this cool little home console. And y'all some might remember it because it has that controller that had the number pad and it had the disc and it was known for killing your hands. <laughs> I we never did the we never did the that. we never did the Intellivision. I don't think. Did we the ever, I was just wondering class. about that because we were when I was doing research for this this, this episode. I was like, where did all the D and D games go? Oh, they all went to Intellivision first. If I'm they not started, mistaken, I think, yeah. we, I think we lumped them in with the Atari. So what's important about the Intellivision is that you know because it had 4K of RAM, which was far more <laughs> it's than like 4K. <laughs> Which is far more. It, could, it actually could do different things, and it had, and it also had more advanced graphics. And mm-hmm. so, basically, you were the first one. Was uh, gosh, what year was it? Oh, I have to get my cheat sheet out. Let me look. Nineteen eighty-two, and that's it. Cloudy Mountain, A D and D, and basically, you're just going through this maze, and you're looking for an arrow quiver and a boat to get through the rivers, an axe to shoot, take down the forests, and a key. And then the final maze is the Cloudy Mountain that you have to fight a dragon. And, you know, you have to get it with your mm-hmm. bow. And, yeah, you guys get special effects today with me. And, um, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, you get the Crowded Kings, which was which was the, the, the end of that. Um, but they also came off another one called Treasure of Tamarind the next year. And then, of course, and it, you know, it had a multi it was a multi level dungeon. So this was kind of like the first kind of such thing you ever had on a console. It was two mages. You have to kill the Minotaur who has the treasure tamarind. It's very similar. But what's really cool about it is its presentation is first person, just like mm. with a Caliph. And at this time, just like you're getting with the first Ultima game and the first Wizardry game. And so that's what's really interesting. So in the early 80s, you had two big PC game series at first, um, at least that I played. I didn't play one of the other ones. So you had Wizardry and you had Ultima. And yeah. they both went in two different directions. As Ultima got better, they focused more on the story that Lord British had created in his world. And gosh, I got to find this old video. Well, actually, he did the rounds everywhere. But he went around and he showed how he wrote up everything for his D&D campaign. And he brought yeah, in all I these did that items. Interview. I think I did it for you all. Uh, you might have done it for me. We were yeah. hanging out in a bar. We were hanging out in a bar in San Francisco, and he yeah. pulled out his little bag full of um, old D and D stuff. Right? Yeah. Like his old his accoutrement because he was in the middle of promoting Shadow of the Avatar. He was like, "I'm an independent uh, MMORPG developer now." I, I think he's a, done with that. <laughs> that was an, that was an impenetrable game, Shadow of the Avatar. Oh yeah, yeah, but we'll, yeah. We'll get to that later. So, what's really interesting is that you know, with Ultima, you're going into a different direction, and 
it had a overworld, which none, no, no RPG at that point had had. Right, right. And it had those really classic graphics that you get on those early computers that were like bitmapped and, and really cool. And those would carry through a couple other games. I mean, you even still have them in the uh, Dungeons and Dragons skull box games we'll get to later. Um, but what was very weird about that game, and then this carried over to Binding Magic later, but you, because you have to say that, <laughs> you know, there was always a, for some reason, a sci-fi component to these games. Mm-hmm. And yes. so you go into space <laughs> in Ultima. I actually read about that. And the fact that I, I thought to myself, wow, why did we go to space? Was he trying to make some sort of like poignant fact about uh, a point about um, uh, stories and RPGs? And no, he just wanted to fill up just space. So Lord British mm-hmm. is great. Yeah, but it sounds great. The stories that he would come up with were make me just think of the kind of fan fiction that I would write when I was in high school. And you know, bless him, he was in high school when he was making yeah. these games. We got to remember, Akalabeth was he made in high school. Yeah, he was still a student, and so that gave him the money to start making the the, the wonderful Ultimate games. And you know, we'll talk more about Ultimate in depth another time when we do a full Ultimate show. We got to get Rowan on with us because he's the biggest Ultimate person in the world. Um, you know, Shroud of the Avatar, Ultima 4, that comes out in 84, and that is really the high point of those early games. It's I, Is it still free on GOG? I think it might still be free. Um, I think if so. You, if you've never played it, go download it there. Um, and so that's a really interesting direction that you go in. And then you go to Wizardry, and Wizardry just goes, okay, well, let's go do the D&D party base game. And so that's where wizardry goes. And what was really interesting about wizardry is, is first of all, you know, it, it's uh, it's on those tandies, it's on those apples, it's on yes. those IBM Clody thingy merjiggers that were around at the time. Um, <laughs> but if I remember correctly, and I might be incorrect here, but I think it was the first one of the Western RPGs to go to Japan. Japanese game developers were all influenced by Ultima because they were all playing they were all playing Ultima and Wizardry and then they went and made Dragon Quest and whatnot. Though as Nadia highlighted, there was also Black Onyx. Yeah. That was by yeah. Hank Rogers. And he brought that over to Japan and everybody was like, What the hell is this? What is going on? What is this RPG thing? One thing that was really cool about Wizardry is, you know, every find the the first person dungeon crawl. But it also offered, you know, classes that you had to build up to, like bishops for clerics. And that was something that we hadn't really seen yet in RPGs at that point. And in fact, you know, you didn't even have, quote unquote, prestige classes, as these would be called later, in RPG development, even on tabletop in a lot of the big systems. You indeed didn't have this. Um, So this was kind of like a really cool innovation that that they came up with over there. That is actually really cool. Yeah, Um, because I know that sort of thing did not really exist in, well, I mean, Final Fantasy kind of brought that over with uh, when you go to Bahamut and he upgrades you. And uh, Dragon Quest Three as well, upgrading from the, uh, to the Sage class takes, a, a, is something you can't really do automatically. You have to work up towards it. So yeah, it's, uh, had to get a start somewhere, I guess. Yeah, and 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 that's where that comes from. That's what's really cool there. So you've got these very basic games, and then you've got these slew of roguelikes that have come out at this time, and you know they're they're all different takes on on rogue and different takes on going down 
deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the dungeons. But that was, you know, I played a little bit of those, but those weren't my things. The two that really spoke to me, I, I have always enjoyed Wizardry. Ultima wasn't something that I, I enjoyed, but to me, it was like I was playing someone else's story and not mine. Ah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess uh, Ultima did have the... Uh... Uh, a little more of a, a focus on uh, outside of the character, the player character, and more on mm-hmm. a, an overarching story. Yeah, so you weren't into JRPGs then because you don't want to play somebody else's story. Well, that's what makes me interesting because I like JRPGs too. But once I figured out it was someone's story, it's like, oh, that's okay. I like that. That's fine. Um, you know, especially Dragon Quest because Dragon Quest and the early Final Fantasies. Uh, when I discovered them, they're like, ooh, those are Dungeons and Dragons and Wizardry. That's all they are. They're just reskinned. But we'll get to that at another point. That's, but, what, um, e- that's what EGM said in his review of Dragon Quest 2. It's like, that's just a reskin of Ultima. What the heck? It's not even that good. <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> Except it was really cool to do something like that on a console when they haven't yeah. you know, really done that before. So uh, what was really cool was, you know, uh, gosh, what year are we going to? So let, let's go to 1985. And 1985 was my kind of really cool year. Um, that's when Bard's Tale comes out. And Bard's Tale's innovation at this point is you have a bard and the bard plays music. And none of these other games really had things that played music in that way that made it part of the role-playing system. Um, the Bard's Tale also we had... We had you on our bard episode last week, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you did a bard episode? Yeah, oh, we, we did gosh, a bard yes. episode and we talked about uh, bard's tale actually yeah so i never ever played a bard in an rpg i don't like bards <laughs> oh so you come down on the anti-bard side so we were having some bard discourse on this show and we were like going is what makes a good bard are, are bards good so you're you're anti-bard you're racist I'm, against bards no classist classist <laughs> <laughs> classist so what i don't like about bards and Every system has done this until I would say about 5e or 2e Pathfinder. So bards were just doing a little bit of everything, but not being good at anything. Yeah, yeah. I had noted that in my research, saying that like they're kind of light the way that rogues are or thieves are or archers are. But why not just have one of them? Why have some plinky plink music asshole? Well, they're basically weak red mages. Ah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. You know, they're basically weaker when... I mean, if you really put things into buffing them, then you've got a really cool support character. But then you have five other characters or three other characters, depending if it's a four or five or six player game. And and then you have this kind of guy who's just there buffing you, but doesn't really do anything else. That's what I don't like about Bards. (laughs) But to get back to it. So the Bards Tale, it had all these really cool dungeons inside the town. And it takes place all in one town. Mm -hmm. And that town has an adventurer's guild and... You know, it's got a bunch of abandoned houses. You go in and you grind by killing monsters. And it has all these traps in this dungeons. More traps than I remember in other games like Wizardry at the time um, for its dungeons. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm old and I forget things. So I might be wrong there. Um, (laughs) But you got some that are spinner traps and darkness traps and teleporter traps. And every dungeon doesn't, you know, some have bosses and others have, you know, a goal at the bottom. Other games, you know, it's really just a different take on D&D. Um, right. You know, instead of having weapons that were plus one or plus two, you had adamantine weapons that got mm. better or mithril weapons that got better. Um, and that's that's 
that's where they're. But what's really the second thing that's notable about it is in 86, they put out a version for the, the then new Apple II GS computer. And that was the hot, that was the hot shit of the time. And it had more colors and it had actual music that right. you could play. Wow. And the music. Go, yeah. God, yeah. So easily impressed back in the mid 80s. But it was nice. It was uh, pretty cool. I, oh, yeah. So the creatures you encountered, they would shift and move, even though you're encountering them in a, you know, not first person, judge call space. So, you know, all day would be like the dragon would raise a slip and growl at you, or the hobgoblin would slash a spear at you or something like that. And it, it would go on a loop as you're going through this battle. Uh, but it was something that wasn't really happening at the time. That's what made that game so groundbreaking. And it, it was also what I really liked about it was it, it showed the future of like, oh, you know, let's bring games to better systems and make them better when we do it. Because um, in the past, it'd been more like, oh, let's bring a game to this and then we'll dumb it down for that. Like, yeah. oh, okay, we'll play it on a PC, but then we'll take it down to a console where it's dumbed down and not as good. And, or arcade down to a console where it's dumbed down and not as good. I, I always think about Pac-Man when I think of that um, for the Atari. Oh God, that game. <sighs> yeah. My yeah. my copy of that game, as my childhood copy had a big hole in it because I stabbed it or something. I was really mad. <laughs> I can see you doing that, Nadia. Violent. Yeah. doing that. So it was like if you, did you play 2600 Pac-Man Cat? You would understand oh, me if you did. I did not have a 2600. I had a 5200. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Good one. yeah. Uh, that's where yeah, I was playing one. Star Raiders and Breakout and on those horrible, horrible controllers. <laughs> there is that. I, I want to take kind of a higher level view. What was the landscape like if you were a PC RPG gamer? Like, what were you playing on? So it was like, there's the Apple II and the Commodore 64 and... All of these different, it's kind of confusing, okay. honestly. Yeah. So the main the main three things people played on were DOS machines, which are IBMs and PCs and such, Apple machines, Apple IIs, Apple II GSs, and the Commodore 64. A lot of these games came out on the Commodore 64, if not day and date, then later as a port. But the Amiga, but there was also the Amiga, which was a 16-bit machine, right? There was the Amiga, but some of these games never came to Amiga. Okay. I think there was also a lot of regional divide between PCs back then. Like in Japan, you had the MSX or the PC-88. And in America, we were just saying Commodore 64. England, you Apple had II. cut rates. England, you had the ZX Spectrum. Yeah. Uh, no, Tandy mm-hmm. was ours. Uh, um, Which, by the way, uh, rest in peace to the inventor of the ZX Spectrum. Oh, that's right. He, that was he this passed week. away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mr. Sinclair. But um, so, so for me, I was playing on DOS machines and Apple. And... After I never played on Mac, though some of these games did eventually come out on Macs too. Um, for example, um, Mario Magic Two when it Mario Magic One when it came out, the first was originally for the Apple II, and then it came over to the PC, and then it came over to Commodore, and then it came to Mac and other systems as other systems came, and they even made a version for the NES. But it never came. But it never came to Amiga, and. You know, I never had a Vega. I never had friends who had a Vegas. Oh no! So that's that's really kind of a a blank spot in, in, in my knowledge, which is kind of a shame. Contextualizing things in the early '80s, you had the great video game crash, right? Yes. So arcades are the big thing. Then you had home consoles, but Atari murders the home console business. It it, it had help. 
but (laughs) they were just putting out reams and reams and reams of crap until they just became bargain bin things. And everybody said, well, these garbage toys are no longer worthwhile. That was a waste of time hooking these things up to televisions. What a weird thing that that was. But in their wake, especially in the U.S., PCs came in. Yeah. PC games became a thing, especially among hobbyists and Mm -hmm. especially in the 1980s. Like we think about consoles in the 80s as being for kids and PCs were for teenagers and adult hobbyists who had money to spare because those things were not cheap. No, no. Though, though I would, I will say that the Commodore 64 was more affordable Yes. Yeah. Than yeah. than the DOS machines or the Apple machines, and its, it's affordability was a big part, a big a big part of its yeah. appeal. And the Apple II, you know, after a few years on the market, there were a lot of them in the second hand market. You could get those at good prices as well. Um, That's a good point too. Yeah, I don't know if it occurs to most of our viewers just how computers of any kind, anything with with computing process power did not exist in our lives like it just <laughs> our console was mm-hmm. as high tech as my household got it i mean as late as the mid to late 90s there are plenty of households that did not have pcs no no they're absolutely they're still three thousand dollars i mean they yeah. were not cheap so 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 i was fortunate you know my father had his own business he, he was a carpenter and he was a contractor and so he always had to have a pc for my mother to run the books Ah, interesting. That's how a lot of kids got into computer games back in the day. Their parents had it for yeah. work. That's yeah. for me. Like my dad was in IT very early and we had um, a 280 or sorry, 286 just sitting around the house and modems. And my dad had a laptop in the 80s, which is completely That's crazy. Wild. How big was it? Oh, it was huge. It was a suitcase oh. with an itty bitty screen. Had like the screen the size of a really big Game Boy. Amazing. My father... My father was a salesman, so <laughs> we got a lot of like stuff from clients who liked him, and clients usually liked him, so we got a lot of cool stuff. So that's oh, how we got our Commodore 64. Good salesman. Yeah. Oh, you He's had, extreme, a, extreme you had a Commodore 64. Yeah, that's the Henry down I mentioned. We had a Commodore what? 64. It was halfway broken. It didn't really work properly, but yeah, he got a lot Did of stuff. Did you play any games playing. on it? I played Temple of Apshi. Um, oh, wow. See, that's one of the ones I didn't play. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, because yeah. it's such a... That's the one game I can really think in my head. Okay, this was extremely significant. I remember playing this game on the Commodore 64. And Nadia's secret PC RPG heritage. I'm sure oh I, I brought it. I must have brought it up because I know wow. that. Wow, I've been podcasting with you for five years, Nadia. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, for me, you know, I was on the really big series, and not because it was like, oh, you know, that's that's all I. You know, that that's all that was available. It really wasn't because between the stores and between, you know, kids trading discs and between the software group that my mom and dad belonged to, um, there were plenty of pirated copies of things. Um, You monster. Yeah. How dare you? You know, that's why we had copy your floppy. I mean, in the late late 90s and, and we'll get to it. You know, passing around those big uh, things full of burned CDs, like oh yeah, piracy. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. been around forever. Yeah. So, so you know, my things were you know, you know, Ultima, Wizardry, Bard's Tale, Mind Magic, and the Gold Box games. And the Gold Box games were really, you know, and Mind Magic, but 
really the gold box games, those were my favorite because, and Bard's Tale, because to me, all those spoke to D&D more than the others. And, and, and that's where, that's where I come from with my video games. And I probably still at this point where it's like, Oh, it's, it, it reminds me of this from D&D or, you know, it has this C&D feel and that, that still speaks to me a lot. You can take a look because if you see my Steam play history, you'll notice uh, all I've played is like Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous, which just came out <laughs> and I've got like 80 hours we got to get you on the show so you can review it for us. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah. I was just playing it before we came it's on. Been a, but, it's been a real, uh, what was it, blank spot. Like, oh, I feel yeah. bad that we haven't reviewed it yet, but I feel oh, like we should. We feel yeah. like we should. Have me back. We'll do a yeah. review. So, so Might and Magic, what I loved about that was it, it was like somebody took Ultima or Wizardry and decided to smoke pot while they made it. <laughs> <laughs> That's most development back then. Why do I say that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, the inner sanctum is really like the bridge of the Enterprise at the end of the game. And you're going off and it's like there's always some reference to a ship in the, at the end of the first couple of Might and Magics. That's weird. And, and, and they're making no sense. Second, you have these hidden monsters that are huge and lots of experience and lots of treasure and they can kill you. One of them was literally called the Cuisinart. The Cuisinart? Cuisinart. And it would do like six hits for any damage apiece and it would just cut you up. Um, it, it, it was just so weird. Like a first super boss, basically. Yeah, and but but it wasn't a boss. It was more like, you know, think about those... You know, in Final Fantasy, where you have those weapon monsters, where like they're like a, a side quest, you don't have to even touch it, yes. but you beat it, and it's like, oh yeah. Once cool. you touch it, shit gets real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was the same thing about it. Um, but you know, Might and Magic, you know, was always a first person. Take a look, you know, go explore the maps, and that's what you really had in those games for most of that time. And if you weren't in a first-person dungeon viewpoint, looking around at the map, um, you're an overworld where you had an icon moving around, and that's that, that that that's what we had in those games at those times, and, and we loved it and we enjoyed it. But at the same time, you know, you take a look at stuff that came around in the '90s, and you could see why PC RPGs for a while looked like they were in trouble mm. in the '90s. What was it about the '80s that PC RPGs had their golden age? Because I I've always said that the I don't think this is an original take, but the eighties were the golden age of PC RPGs and the nineties was the silver age, the two thousands were the dark age, and then we had the new age in the twenty tens. Mm-hmm. What was it about the eighties and PCs that allowed RPGs to flourish? Is it just that you didn't necessarily need the most advanced graphics because you could put a picture up and some stats and people would mm-hmm. fill it in with their imagination? Was that it? So for me, it's two reasons. Uh, number one, there were so many different types of PC formats that that you, you could make a game, but you're all still working in, you know, ProDOS or DOS. It's basically right. all just basic programming language. So it was easy to move it from one different format to another. And they were cheap to, cheap to make because you didn't need a lot of art. You didn't need, you know, you still had to make the maps and the bitmaps and all that. Um, you didn't need a lot of knowledge for that. And to me, at least, you know, for those that tried to go the more story route, like like Richard, like Richard did with Ultima, you know, you could put a lot of story still in those little bit of bites. 
mm-hmm. which was really amazing about it. So I would say, you know, it's versatility and how, you know, you could gradually, as things got bigger and bigger and bigger, you're able to fill those up with more interesting worlds. The second thing, in my opinion, was even with the decline of Dungeons and Dragons later in in the decade because of you know, the, the morality scare, there were still a lot of different RPG systems on tabletop. Right. And, you know, for kids getting together to play tabletop, you know, you're only able to do it on the weekends. And if you have a computer to play at home, you could still get that very similar experience playing there. And then if you're an adult, you know, if you don't have anyone to play with, or again, you can't play because of that, you have that thing experience to play with at home. What amazes me about PC RPGs is that they were so primitive, but they really shot for the stars. Games like Ultima 4 wanted to transform the way that we understood video games at that time in the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, people, commentators from that era, as late as the mid 90s, were saying, you can never top the mid 80s. It's just <laughs> RPGs will never be as good. They were but, old and grumpy even back then. But. You know, as somebody who goes back and tries to play some of them every now and then, oh, yeah, we've taught them. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> oh, heck, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's all rose-colored glasses, right? Yeah. We're like, yeah. looking back, and you're like, I mean, how? but they were shooting for the stars in ways yeah. that were really well, amazing. You know, some were shooting for the stars. Others were like, let's just make the best number-crunching game we can make for this. And, you know, who cares if it's a story or not? Or it's like, let's let the players come up with their own story for what we're playing. And I don't know about you, but I still do the let's come up with our own story and make the characters ours when I play RPGs. I kind of do that with Final Fantasy XIV. I have a problem, but yeah. <laughs> I, I do like having, I, I do like the, the times when the story organically emerges, emergent storytelling. And sometimes it's not even because it's not even real it's just a coincidence but humans like to see patterns in numbers and so and form stories out of those and so sometimes i do that and there are stories of those you know it's like i can remember talking with uh dan shu one day about about bardstale and it's like there's this one infamous fight at clarion's tower where you fight 99 berserkers and 99 berserkers and 99 berserkers and 99 berserkers four yeah. groups of them you know and then like i said with my magic there's that cuisinart monster that you have to beat and then when you look at ultima it's like oh you reach the avatar and it's like oh i didn't know that i mean all these games have their touchstone in some way right and and they're shared stories amongst those just like any other type of game but um the reason why i think we also look back at these games is because they were so simple in so many ways. And that simplicity was different in that anyone could play them. Some people just can't play a Mario Brothers because you can't do the jumps. You mm. can't do the timing. Some people can't play a Mega Man because you just can't time the jumps around the shots. Or you don't have a hand where you can do that. There are times, though, when I look at these RPGs and I'm like, I'm too dumb for this game. I don't know what the <laughs> hell's going on. I was barely smart enough to grasp Dragon Quest when it came out. I eventually <laughs> just kind of persevered and said, okay, I can I can do this. I can't I can't subtract or divide, but I can play this game. Yeah. So the where sometimes it got a little more convoluted was the copy protection when they would tie it to parts yes. of 
journals that came with the games or or, or instruction books that came with the games. The uh, the gold box games were especially notorious for that. We talked about this on the the Retronauts episode about yeah. instruction booklets. I don't know if that's out yet, but if that's it not. is, you should listen to it. I played that's a not. lot of Return to Zork, and you had to have the Encyclopedia Frobosica. And so you would go through... She, you would have the school teacher do the copy protection by asking you a very specific question from the dang encyclopedia, and you have to open it up and dig it out, dig out the answer. Whereas Tie Fighter had the just the keywords on each page, and so you could guess those mm-hmm. if you were yeah, smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could do that with Master of Orion too. If you guessed the ship that they were showing you, and you didn't feel like digging up the the cheat sheet that your brother had printed mm-hmm. out from the internet, because of course he had. Yeah. <laughs> And and I can't remember which gold box game it was, or if I misremembered it, was it something else that actually had a, a wheel that you had to use? Oh, I know I know there was a game that had that, and we talked about it on that episode, but I can't remember which yeah. game it was. Yeah, well, you know, I put all that out of my memory banks because I don't <laughs> for anything else. Good job. Valid. Yeah. Jason, what are the five most influential RPGs on PC in the 1980s in your oh. go? Putting you oh, on the spot. I want gosh. to hear it. Okay, so it has to be it has to be a Calabeth, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Um, Ultimate Four. Ultima Four. Technically, gets... a Calabeth came out in 1979. That's true. Good enough. That's true. Um, I would say the next one would be after after Ultima Four. I would say the next one would be, in my opinion, would be uh, Wizardry Wizardry Three. Uh, followed by, um, if I remember, maybe I'm getting my numbers wrong, but that's the one where he actually played as the evil lord defending the dungeon, huh, and so it took that whole it took that whole idea and flipped it on its head. Um, third, uh, for the for those RPGs, like the most the, the most you know influential, um, I, I would say just the entire gold box because what they did with that was you know taking the novelist novels and making an adaptation of of those games and then coming up and tying that whole world together the last uh number four i would put um you know even though i never played it i i, I would i would i would probably put um well actually no i'm, I'm gonna ditch that i'm gonna ditch that number four i'm gonna put dungeon master because okay. mm, it was the first one of the blobbers the 3D right. dungeon crawlers where you're actually interacting with each different square and you're touching buttons and you're throwing things and you're doing weapons and it, just a whole different perspective. And then finally, I'm going to put the bard's tail for the, for the way it did with music. There you have it. And Jason, what would you say are a couple of the most significant moments for PC RPGs in the 1980s? The big moments, the transformative moments. What about that thing I always bring this up because it's hilarious. We're Lord British uh, with Ultimate Four, and the people were saying you're you're forcing us to kill kids, and he's like, "No, I'm not. You crazy people, what are you talking about?" And it was a whole like introduction to what morality systems would eventually become in RPGs. Mm. That's interesting. Ultimate Four, I think, probably is the RPG of the '80s. Yes, I would definitely say that the defining PC RPG of that era. So when I, when it comes down to moments. For me, it, it has actually more to do with hardware. It's the Apple II GS, which allows for bigger, richer games when it comes to how they're displayed and 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 and, and the music that comes with them. So that would be another one next to Ultima Four. And then from for me, it would be the first IP games. 
when you start getting D&D, when you start getting Shadowrun right. and stuff like that. Yeah, hardware was really improving by leaps and bounds in the 80s, like in ways that are even were maybe even hard to fathom as as late as the as early as the 90s or the, or the 2000s mm-hmm. like go the difference between 1980 and 1989 is unfathomable mm. oh yeah yeah completely completely but what's so really cool about that too is you know we still get that but we get that either with um with you know software and, and how you render things nowadays. right the primordial ooze of rpgs jason if there were an rpg from that era that you still think is eminently playable today that you would direct our listeners to which one would it be is it pool of radiance no it's not any of the gold box games as much i would love it to be um Mm -hmm. the easiest one i think people would interact with is dungeon master to be honest Oh yeah. yeah, which is different sense. than which is different than all the other games we talked about in the way it plays because it's you know kind of a first person three D perspective. Mm. Um, and people would be able to grok that a little bit easier, whereas like the super outdated interfaces and everything. Of well, the you game, know, it's like... still you know you still got to mouse over everything just like you would. Mm. It would be using the same exact interface they would be if you had played um, Legends of Grimrock. And then if you really want to fight through it, then. Go get Ultima 4 and download it. <laughs> Fight Ultima 4. Well, the reason we put Ultima 7 on our top 25 RPGs is that that's the one that's playable still in many ways. Like, it introduced the high, it, it introduced the, the new UI and all of that. A much more modern UI. Jason, final thoughts on the 1980s or PC RPGs? It was a time of experimentation and freedom of, of being able to do wacko small things. Teams. Yeah, Just very small one teams. developer. Some of them, some of them, some of them. Can Others a computer game make you cry? Can they, Jason? No. Uh. <laughs> well, okay, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. Um, so Adventure Construction Set was like making your own RPGs. And I remember making one and... It give you all this really cool treasure, and then I had this monster that killed Jobel, so I'm actually made my brother cry. Aww. Aww. That, I can feel that in my soul. But for me, it's, it, it, it's, it's, yes, it's, they're, you know, as you kept going deeper into the 80s with them, they all were familiar, but they all had their own spin on what everyone else was doing, and they all tried to add something new. Mm-hmm. And it's that sense of experimentation that I think is really what 80s RPGs were. I was not really playing PC RPGs at the time, but I will share a memory from this era. I remember going into shops with many PCs and there were many, many, many screens everywhere that would be displaying games. And I had no idea what these games were, but they were all so pretty. They were all so much better than anything I could get on the NES. Flight simulators and RPGs and everything. They had some just, great cinema scenes for the time too. They used yes, to just amazing. Make those they were so they were so far ahead of their console counterparts. They were like it was like glimpsing the future. Don't for, don't for, don't forget your fleet battle games and your mm. and your and not only did you have flight sims, but you also had sims where you're you know operating ships. Hardcore tabletop war games, hardcore flight sims, and hardcore RPGs. That's what the kids were playing on PCs back the in kids, the 1980s. Yeah. 
Yeah. But, you know, if you're going to say, you know, what were my favorites? So Barnstown will always be special to me because of that music. The first time you, you, you turn it on and it loads up your characters and it starts playing that song on, on the more advanced, you know, hardware it ran on. Yeah. That was always special to me. And then the gold box games were always special to me because of, you know, the obvious tie-ins with Dungeons and Dragons and like, oh, you know, there's there there's the City of Flan. That's right there in my gray box set. I can mm-hmm. refer to that and it's like, oh, okay, so this is some story things in it here with Aishir Bonds. I haven't read the book yet, but oh, maybe I'll take this a little bit and I'll put it into my game. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about PC RPGs. And that's part two of the console RPG quest. We're not done with the 80s. Got lots more to explore in this particular period. I got I got a couple of more episodes, I think, in the 1980s. We're going to talk about Japanese PCs. I'm going to try and get an interview. And then we'll head into the 90s. It'll be fun. But thank you so much, Jason. It's been a lot of fun. We'll get you back on the show ASAP. Sounds to, great. To review Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous. In the meantime, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for listening. Bye, everyone. <laughs> yeah, goodbye, Jason. Uh, no, um, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Jason, where can we find you? Well, right now, just on Twitter, where I'm not doing a whole hell of a lot because I'm just taking a little time off. But that's Jason Good underscore Wilson lowercase. Yes, play some video games, relax, enjoy, go to the park with your son. It'll be good. Yes, that's probably what I'm going to do right now. We'll be back next next week, as always. But until then, for Nadia, Jason, myself, thanks for listening. Happy adventure. Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God in and. Um, uh, oh, man, man. Yeah.